0: Hi there, come up on the porch, we're just sitting here watching it rain, and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee, and I'm Steve Payne, and this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 509 for February 18th, 2023. Welcome back. Uh, Today we uh, are having a guest, Ruth uh, Laney, who has uh, written a book about Ernest Gaines. It's called Sherry Quarters, The Place and People That Inspired Ernest J. Gaines. And uh, according to the LSU uh, website, um, this book combines personal interviews, biography, and social history to tell the story of a plantation quarter and its most famous resident, renowned Louisiana writer and... Hewlett Surprise nominee, Ernest J. Gaines. And so he grew up in a sharecropping family and um, in um, in houses that had been back built back uh, before the Civil War for uh, the en- enslaved ancestors. So uh, people kept living in these
1: houses uh, for a very long time after uh, after slavery ended. So uh, yeah, built. it says here built as slave cabins uh, mm-hmm. for the nearby River Lake plantation, the 1840s. So, yeah, these are old, and they would now be close to 200-year-old houses, you know.
0: Yeah, and when he was growing up, around 100 years old. So. um, Well, so we'll be looking forward to, and really, uh, we probably should have talked about Ernest Gaines a long time before this. It just takes a while to get around everybody.
1: Well, and we missed him personally, unfortunately, because he he was already getting older as we started. I think his health was failing, too, and it's a real shame, because somebody said that to you or me one time, that his health was not all that great towards the end.
0: We wanted to interview him, which would be the gold standard, but uh, we were never able to work that out. Um, So um, talking to his biographer is uh, the next best thing. And uh, we'll be talking to Ruth in a few minutes.
1: But first, this week in Louisiana history... So this week in Louisiana history, on February seventeenth, eighteen o five, the city or the town of New Orleans is incorporated as a city. So it's pretty remarkable, you know. And they at that time, New Orleans is really the the only city of any consequence in this part of the country, except for Natchez, I would so, suppose. Yeah, and in Baton Rouge, but in Baton Rouge, you know, yeah. Just-
0: New Orleans is the big Kahuna, And I imagine what we mean by this is uh, if you notice the date, it's after the Americans took over. So, right. They wanted to do, you know, like the, French and the Spanish didn't have quite the same procedure. So, um, but now we're a real incorporated city.
1: Yes, they're putting their stamp on. That's literally what
0: yeah. they're doing. Yeah. Uh, now, for this week in New Orleans history, on February 17th, 1944, the Liberty Ship Rufus E. Foster. Was launched at the Delta Shipbuilding Company, and they built a lot of ships for World War II um, down in New Orleans. So <clears throat> it was one of the primary places where uh, that were churning out. And I guess every every port area was building as many ships as they could because oh, yeah. we, we had to uh, we had to
1: um, ramp up. <clears throat> now for this week in Louisiana. So this week in Louisiana, you can visit the St. Louis Cemetery Number 2 on the Historic New Orleans Tours. This is a starting point, I guess, is the back-of-town coffee parlor at 301 Basin Street in New Orleans. Uh, free people of color have a storied history in New Orleans. After being freed, many purchased vaults and tombs in the St. Louis Cemetery Number 2. Their tombs each tell both a troubling and a fascinating story. Here are the tales of black poets writers, swordsmen, and mathematicians on this unique tour. These tours are presented by the Historic New Orleans Tours and start at Back of Town Coffee Parlor. They'll take you through Treme and to the historic spots such, such as, as Square and Armstrong Park. Have you ever taken that tour? No, I, you know, I've never taken any of the tours. I need to go on some of those, though. They mention specifically poets and writers, so these may be. I wonder if that's not some of the people out of Lace and that that anthology.
0: Yeah, it would be a good thing to, um, to like go on a literary tour and just, you know, like even if they aren't always correct, some, sometimes they, uh, they can be wrong with <laughs> the stuff they're talking about, but it's still fun to go to the places where all this history happened, you know? Right. Yeah. You're, you're walking amidst history, literally. Mm-hmm, Yeah. Totally. <clears throat> well, um, Now for the. Hold on, I've got to find my spot. Usually, (laughs) we're always losing our spot. Here we go. Um,
1: The postcard for this week?
0: Yes, trying to get there. Okay, this week's postcard from Louisiana. uh, I listened to the uh, Tip Jar Junkies, I think, on Royal Street.
2: I'm surprised I might feel fairly sad I guess my little was rough But I know I'd say the same style. We received our education Thank you to the cities of the nation beautiful.
0: Enjoyed that so, what's your name? I'm Joe. Joe? Yeah. And um, do you mind if I put you on my podcast, just yeah, put one of your fine. songs? Okay. Yeah. And uh, do you have a place people can buy your stuff online? Uh, we're cool.
2: working on that. I got a show coming up tomorrow at Basso on French Street.
0: if you're trying to get it.
2: And what, would you, what should people look for? Uh, look for Tip Jar Junkies, New Orleans.
0: Tip Jar Junkies. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that. Thanks. Well, thank you.
2: Let's see. What's a good one? normally a fiddle player
0: oh so you brought your guitar out today
2: yeah. there's a guitar player right there what happened there's a guitar player right there he's trying to put
0: well, maybe the you can to... play fiddle
2: yeah let's do trudy you want to do trudy yeah. sure my guitar's in tune if you going to move it all right Some tour guide made him mad today, so he got mad. But he's back.
0: So. Oh, good. <laughs> what was he yelling over you guys?
2: Uh, yeah, something like that. Tour guide was being not a very nice person. A dick.
0: Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. The word I was looking for, but <laughs> in New Orleans, who woulda guessed? As a
2: public figure, you gotta be politically correct. So that's it. I wish that I wasn't. All right. All right. One, two. One, two, three, four yeah. Call up through the the telephone Well, send a letter in the mail Then tell her I'm hung up your in Dallas. This man in Dallas County Had go a gold watch chain and a black mustache And he loves whiskey and he loves women Drove a long black Cadillac limousine Get the big fine fancy townhouse in Dallas And a hotel suite in New Orleans Scared to switch a plate knife is left in your pocket And a course for hog leg go. So I'll come up to the telephone Well, send the letter in mail And tell her I'm hung up here in Dallas And they won't let me out of this jail If she asks me how I'm faring Well, tell her I'm just about to lose like Grant friend took rich Till big John Lee comes strolling in And he raked off the table like a 707 Pretty soon he done won all of my friends I accused him of cheating and he reached for his pistol And I grabbed a chair in of his head And I took off running like a motorcycle Buggy, buggy Captain Dallas County Just throw one cool ass boy in jail So colour through the own telephone We'll send a letter.
0: job thank you yeah
2: your guitarist almost cut my head. i was yeah. like Shit. we were completely out of tune but it was all right yeah, that yeah. sounded good thank
0: you yeah, how thank long you. y'all been busking oh uh, we've no, been I, yeah. a while
2: yeah he's been doing a solo act for a while and i've been doing a solo act for
0: a while i we hate your was, guitar meet up Yeah, meet up what's this. your name my name is bruce McGee. i've got a podcast comes out once a week oh really okay and yeah. at the beginning i like put in a postcard from Louisiana and get a group singing or sometimes we'll interview an artist uh, painting or something like that. That'd be great. Thank you. And so people should look for you at, what was it again? Uh, Tip Jar Junkies? Tip Jar Junkies. Look us up on YouTube. Okay, great. you all good luck. Thank you. Hey. Now on to our interview with Ruth Laney. I'm
3: Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And we're here today with Ruth Laney. Hey, Ruth.
4: Hi, Steve. Hi, Bruce.
3: Howdy. I've known you a long time through Facebook, but I think this may be our first time to talk to each other. I think so. Well, and we have a good reason to talk. You have a recent book about earnest games. you going to tell our folks the title and where they can get it?
4: Yeah, the title is Cherie um, Quarters The Place and the People that inspired Ernest J. Gaines. It's published by LSU Press. It can be ordered direct from the press. In fact, right now, um, the press is offering a 40% discount through December 15th. Cool. On all, books, all books ordered directly from the press.
3: Well, great. That's a good deal. Uh, it well, is. <laughs> If you're a book file like me and Stephen, then you appreciate a bargain on books.
4: Exactly.
3: Uh, you know, like a mechanic buys tools. We buy books. So, uh, you know, one of those ongoing expenses. So, um,
5: because from, otherwise we have to steal them. <laughs> are, are I
4: probably <laughs> or check them out of the library and never yeah.
5: them. Right.
4: Are you from Louisiana originally? I am. I'm from Baton Rouge. Okay, cool.
3: So, did you go to LSU?
4: I did. Well, when were you there? Um, I started in 1962. Oh. <laughs> and I I got my um, bachelor's in English in 1966, and then I went back later. Or, um, I was going to go to graduate school in uh, English, but I had a few credits from UNO because I'd been living in New Orleans for a while, and right. um, LSU would not accept them. So, yeah. <laughs> Even
3: though the original <laughs> I name. over to
4: um, art <laughs> history, so I have a master's in art hmm. history.
3: The original name of UNO was LSUNO because it was a branch of... LSU and the classes are supposed to be like the same, you know. It's supposed yeah. to be the transcript.
4: And I had been working. I had a job working at um, UNO in the student union. And I think, um, I think, if you were to, if you were working there, you were allowed to take like one class per semester or something like right. that. Right. I took several English classes. And um, I, I can't remember now how many, but when I went to register uh, in graduate school, they refused to accept them, so I said, okay, I'll just major in art history, or, you know, get my master's in art history. Right. So. Well, they're related
3: topics, all the cultural stuff like uh, uh, historical architecture, you know, that's. that's thing we study about Louisiana and um music and food and uh you know painting and sculpture and all those arts we we study as part of the culture you know right, so how did you go so get... also
5: also the folk life and the religion and
3: oh yeah you know, yeah,
5: everything else i mean they're yeah. all yeah they're all kind of tied together ultimately.
3: So how did you get interested in Ernest Gaines?
4: Well, um while I was working on that degree in um art history, I got a job at LSU uh press working as a copy editor.
3: Oh my, yeah.
4: And um I was I was uh the the press at that time was located in uh Hill Memorial Library over near Allen Hall where um now it's basically a kind of a research center, but at that time the press offices were there and the um the editors were on the second story. So Charles East Um, I think at that time he was director of the press, but he may have been assistant or associate director, but at any rate he later did become director. He came upstairs to the editorial department. He brought with him a man. um, He kind of rapped on the door jam. I was sitting at my desk. (laughs) He introduced... A man, um that's Ernest Gaines. He said he was in town from San Francisco to help select locations for the television version of the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. And
3: um Okay, we're back. We lost the connection but hopefully it'll hold up this time. And you were telling us how um we met Ernest Gaines when he came to town working on a movie version of the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, and I was remarking about how wonderful it was that they actually filmed something said in Louisiana, in the state of Louisiana. And back then, that didn't happen all that much.
4: Yeah, they—they, they, I think they filmed mostly in the St. Francisville area. Um. I'm
3: hearing a lot of bumping noises. I know. Stephen, are you bumping on anything? No. I don't know. That's weird. Well, it kind of stopped now. Let's hope stopped. stop. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you met him. He was working on uh, uh, Miss Jane Pitman. And um, ha- did y'all have an ongoing connection? Like, did you work with him as an editor or anything?
4: No. What happened? Um, After Charles introduced him, he uh, mentioned that Ernest Gaines would be giving a reading uh, that afternoon for um, one of the creative writing classes that was taught by Warren Eister. And um, if anybody in the editorial department wanted to go and hear him read, we were welcome to do so. So um, that afternoon at the appropriate time, it's probably about two or three, uh, I went and Beverly Jarrett, who was the head copy editor then, um, the two of us walked over to Lockett Hall and uh it was mostly creative writing students and then a few professors in a classroom. Everybody was sitting at desks and um, Ernest Gaines stood up in the front of the room and he read Just Like a Tree, which is the final story in his uh, book of short stories called Bloodline. And uh, it was very moving. And um, after he read the story, I think there was some uh, Q&A, um... You know, why did you tell this story from multiple points of view? You know, that kind of thing. And at some point, Ernest Gaines talked about having grown up across the river from Baton Rouge in Pointe Coupee Parish in a town called Oscar. And, um, you know, he lived in a plantation quarter. Uh, the name of the plantation was River Lake Plantation, <clears throat> And he, at the age of 15, his parents, who had already moved to California, they were living in Vallejo, sent him a train ticket. And he talked about going out and standing on Highway 1 along False River and waiting for the Trailways bus and waving his handkerchief when he saw the bus and Gary on the bus, and he rode to New Orleans. Uh, then he got from there onto a train to California. And so at 15 and a half, his whole world changed. He was, you know, uh, had luck behind his brothers and sister, his great-aunt who raised him, um, everything he knew suddenly in, you know, this strange new world. And I was so taken with that story that I said, um, I turned to Beverly Garrett, who who's sitting next to me, and I said, I'm going to ask him if I can interview him. Well, yeah. For Gulfstream. There was a little magazine called Gulfstream that had just been started in the... Um, English department at LSU, graduate students. And um, I had no idea whether they would want an interview, but that thought occurred to me, and I went up to him and, and asked if I could interview him, and he said yes. We well, what, what, when
5: is this now exactly? What, what's the date?
4: 1972. Okay. So, um, in fact, it was the end of October, Uh So um, I never heard of Ernest Gaines until that day. So I went to the student union and I bought a a paperback of the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, and I read it. And um, I borrowed a tape recorder from a friend, and we met at the student union on a Saturday morning and uh, went to the Tiger Lair. uh, You know, got coffee, and we sat and talked for several hours, and, um, you know, I asked him about, since that was the only book I had read, but it was also the most recent, and the one being made into a movie, um, you know, I asked him about his aunt, he he partially dedicated the, the book to her memory, she had been, as he described her, crippled, she couldn't walk, and yet She raised him and his brothers and sister. She cooked, cleaned, washed their clothes, even sewed with a pedal sewing machine. Um, So we talked, and then I started um, transcribing my interview um, into like an examination blue book.
3: (laughs) Right. two follow up questions on the, what you were seeing earlier. By growing up in the quarters, um were those originally slave quarters? Because usually they, that's what it means in Louisiana.
4: They definitely were. And I, I didn't visit the quarter until ten years after that first meeting. And um I I was on assignment for a Louisiana Life magazine and they asked uh, Philip Gould to take the photos for my article. So he and I and Ernest Gaines met at Sherry Quarters, and um, we start You know, we parked and we started walking up. The it was a road with about fifteen cabins on either side, and. Uh, it was February. It was cold and gray, so there was smoke coming out of the chimneys. And these were cypress cabins. They were double, mm-hmm. you know, double cabins, um, originally built for two families with a privacy wall down the middle. I so have
3: had- heard that the dimensions and the way it's made was dictated by the Spanish. Like, that's why all over the state they're all, you know, go, you go in a, a former slave quarter in Alexandra, it looks like one in Lafayette.
4: I wasn't aware of the um the Spanish dictates, but when I got interested later in um preserving two of the cabins, I I was talking to Sid Gray, who is a real expert in in old buildings and um he looked at the hardware nails, the hinges, um, he looked at how the wood was sawn, sawed, and he determined that they were built in the 1840s.
3: Oh, okay, so recent. Well. <laughs> by, by those standards.
4: I mean, still during slavery. Right. And, and still being lived in, in in 1982.
3: Yeah, yeah, those those houses, that you, some of them are very well made. And they've built them
4: he thought these were as well-made as the big house, which yeah. he was also able to look at.
3: Well, and they thought slavery was going to be forever, so they wanted their it, – it wasn't fancy quarters, but they wanted them to live in something, you know, that um, um, wouldn't kill them.
5: <laughs> well, it, it reminds me of the dog-trot houses up here in North Louisiana, where the oldest surviving structure here in Lincoln Parish is – I think to the eighteen forties, maybe maybe a little later, but I think eighteen forty some odd. And there were mm-hmm. families living in that doggone house. It's up near Dubach where my mother was from and mm-hmm. back a lot southwest of town. And that house was occupied until the nineteen sixties. So almost a hundred years.
4: Well the the last two cabins
5: a little over a hundred years I guess. In um
4: the last two cabins at Sheree Quarters were still being lived in in 1993 and there there was a woman living on one side of the lane Mm. her name was Joyce Edwards they called her Shug and across the road in the opposite house was a woman named Carrie A. and on the other side of her double house was a man named Willie Aaron so they didn't move out until early 1993. So up until 1993, that's 150 years of occupancy by one group of people, which, of course, diminished over time.
5: Now, he had lived in those things As a kid, then he moves to California uh, where the aunt, you know, provides the kind of the parental role or whatever. So did some of his family stay uh, in the three quarters, or did they move away? I mean, what what happened to the rest of his relatives? Did he ever say?
4: Um, The aunt who raised him did not leave. Okay. She remained there. Um, The people who had already moved away, were his mother and his stepfather. Okay. And um, they were living in Vallejo, and uh, it was kind of a naval town. So they had—I'm not sure how long they had been there, but you know, they as soon as they got more or less settled, they they sent him a ticket. Uh, they knew that he was very bright. They wanted him to be educated, and at that time, there was no high school in Pointe-Pee Parish that he could go to. He was not allowed to go into the public library. In fact, he said, we we never even thought about trying to go there.
0: So this
3: um, is Jim Crow, uh, for our listeners. Um, when and, and a lot of black
5: families did move away during that
3: period, um, just to escape the vicious racism
5: that was, was part like, of the Great Migration. That's, you know, yeah. all about that.
4: Yeah, well, he was born in 1933, January of 1933. When he left, it was August of 1948, so he was 15 and a half years old. Um, He started, when he got to Vallejo, he went to junior high school. So, uh, his first experience of being in a class with white children, being taught by white teachers, um, and then he went from there, he went to Vallejo High School, and he got, he was a track star in high school, he, he ran the 440 and I think the 220, and, and won a lot of medals and ribbons, he was he was actually a very good runner, and he also played football for a while, but he said I was the worst football player to ever, put on a helmet, (laughs) but he was suddenly, um, it wasn't just white people that now he was in contact with, but all kinds of different people, you know, Filipino, Japanese, Chinese, uh, you know, suddenly it was just a whole different world. It wasn't just a black and white world. And um he learned to type also, which I thought was interesting. He he uh took a typing class. And
3: um I've always said my most useful college class was typing. I use it every single day.
4: Same here except I took it in high school. <laughs> And I I, I, I've, I've so, always said I just, didn't make a whole lot of great decisions when I was 15, but taking yes. a typing class was definitely one of them.
5: Well, you well, know, his 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 move to the West Coast tracks with not only the mig- the black migrations, but also, I mean, it's the Cold War, the early early days of the Cold War, and so there's all these people. Presumably, uh, if if that was a naval town, then you've got people that are working, you know, probably a support personnel around the, you know, around the base or whatever else. And and there are a lot lot of different kinds of people moving to California. In fact, some some friends of my parents even pulled the same number and moved out there, I think in the 50s sometime maybe early, mid-50s, because there were jobs out there. Mm -hmm. And so they they moved out there to go to work. And they were from up here in North Louisiana from Shudron, I I believe, it is the or somewhere in East Lincoln Parish. But they mm-hmm. moved out there and raised their families out there too, and they were yeah. Anglo's. They were not, you know, African American.
3: And so by that family.
5: time, Truman had integrated the armed forces,
3: so it was one place you could go. Like his, probably his dad, um, to be able to get away from uh, the slavery—not uh, slavery, but Jim Crow South.
4: Well, many of the men of Sherry Quarters served in in, in the war. Um, some of them for four years. And uh, I think, you know, that as much as anything inspired people to leave because they had been in other cultures. They had probably been treated with, you know, let's hope more respect. Um, At least they saw there's a wider world. And so I think that did inspire many of them to leave. You know, once they were out of the service.
3: All right. So, the um, like, how was his high school experience? um uh, you know, high school can be cruel. <laughs> so, how did he uh, how do you find it uh, in this week? I,
4: I, I think he did well. He, he he told a great story, and as many times as I had interviewed him, this came. Uh, I think I interviewed him in twenty. Fifteen uh, for an online publication called The Root. And he told me a story I'd never heard before, which was when he was in Franklin Junior High, you know, had just come, you know, to California. And he before he left uh, Point Coupee, he had gone to a, a black Catholic school in New Roads called St. Augustine, and he remembered being called on by a priest um and it was a white a white priest, and he jumped to his feet and he said, "Yes, sir," and the priest said, "Say, father, say yes father and uh so when he got to school in Vallejo, and he's going to the uh Franklin Junior high. The teacher called on him, and he jumped to his feet, and he said the kids all cracked up. He said they were all slouched out in their desks, you know, stretched out. So they thought he was funny because he, you know, he thought you were supposed to stand up when you were called on. And he talked He talked about a a classmate, a white boy named Gilbert Crane, and he said he looked like a crane. He had a long nose and swoop back hair, and he always had some tricks to play on the teachers. Like he had a pile of rubber dog doo doo that he would put on the teacher's seat, and he would, you know, just just was a prankster. And um, and Ernie said, I thought he was one of these crazy white guys. <laughs> He hadn't gone to school yet with people like that. So it was a completely different attitude.
5: Yeah, I mean, he's thrown into a different piece of geography, a different culture, a different culture, since there are more more than one, you know, kinds of people living out there. It had to be kind of exciting and kind of ranching at the same time, I would imagine.
4: Well, one of the things that he's talked about a lot – Vallejo was a naval town, so there were lots of sailors, bars, you know that kind of thing and He would hang out a little bit on the street, and his um stepfather told him, "You know, I don't want you on the street, so you you can either go to the Y or the library." And I think both of them were probably within walking distance of, of where they lived. So he tried the Y first and um, tried boxing, and he wasn't, you know, he got hurt. He was pounded, so he decided that wasn't for him, and so he went to the library. And that turned out just to be a huge turning point in his life, Um you know, he a library card. He was able to check out books. And he said he first would walk up and down the aisles. You know, he went to the fiction section, which is upstairs. This is a beautiful Carnegie Library built in 1904. And it had free-to-all chiseled in the facade and... um, like I said, he had never been in a library before, and um, he just fell in love with books. You know, he 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 started looking for country type, you know, books about the countryside. He even tried a tree grows in Brooklyn, you know, because he wasn't sure. And he said, "What I realized was I was looking for the people I had left behind. You know, the country and the and the people." And when he couldn't find what he was looking for, he decided that he would write his own book. So at age, like, 16, he started writing a novel. Wow. And, and, yeah, and he yeah. would he, he would write it by hand, and um, he said at some point he decided, okay, it's finished, and he, he convinced his mother to uh, run a typewriter for him, and she did. And, uh, and, you know, that, that alone tells you a lot. You oh, yeah. Know. And, you know, uh,
3: something we've noticed over the course of a project, sometimes it's easier to write about Louisiana if you either grew up somewhere else and came here or if you grew up here and moved somewhere else. But you almost need that distance. Like, uh, you know, it's a Thanksgiving week, um good luck finding melaton's uh, north can you, know? <laughs> you aren't going to. And you get out to California, and you see how other people live, and it throws what he grew up with into relief. You know, yeah. oh, okay. But,
4: but he also missed it, and, and um, what he wrote about, um, he called it a little stream, and he wrote about a... Um, uh, light-skinned woman and a darker-skinned man who are in love, but, you know, separated by... And that's really the kind of color prejudice that shows up in his books a lot,
3: Mm -hmm.
4: more than just, say, white-black. And um, once he got the typewriter that his mother rented for him, he said he cut... Paper in half because that was the size of a book, and then he typed, you know, single space because that's how books were, and he typed on both sides of the page, <laughs> and then he would stack them up.
3: Oh my goodness!
4: You know, and then when it was finished, he actually sent it off to a New York publishing house. uh... And he and he said, I'm sure it looked like a bomb, you know. And he and he said it 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 was returned to him, apparently unopened. And um, he said he went down in in the backyard where there was an incinerator and just threw it in there. And you know, it would be a few more years before he started writing again. But at that age, uh he already had it in his mind to write, to, and to write fiction.
5: I've seen that same phenomenon in these – I'm a member of a lot of these uh, pulp magazine communities on Facebook, and I've seen the same thing with not only with fan writers, you know, turning out so-called fan fiction, but also fan artists. And they mm-hmm. all put together a – home. what I'm asked to a homemade book or a homemade, you know, portfolio or whatever – and mm-hmm. then and eventually some of them, not all of them, but some of them, a certain percentage, start shopping the things around trying to sell it to somebody, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ev- and some of them, you know, are actually good enough where they probably could make it. And some of them they might make it, but with a little more, I guess you'd say experience or training or whatever. And some will get discouraged and do what he did. They'll, they'll toss it, you know, go into the incinerator or go into the garbage or whatever else. Uh, mm-hmm. And you have to hope, especially with some I've seen, that don't make it but have promise. You just have to hope somebody will take them under their wing and help them because well, they really do have potential.
4: What ended up happening was, um, you know, he ended up. Well, he got drafted, so he he spent a couple of years on Guam, and uh, he would go to the base library, and uh, he did do some writing there, short stories. And he won a couple of prizes in a couple of contests. Um, I think he he won a $10 check for one and a $15 check for another one. But, But when he got out of the service, he enrolled at San Francisco State College. And he decided that, you know, he would study, I think, They called it language arts or something. It's basically English. And then, um, you know, he was was writing for, um, there was a student magazine called, um, I think it's called Transfer. And one of his teachers, um, he had actually been, are you all still there? I want to be sure.
5: Yeah, yeah, we're
4: here. Okay, because I I was afraid we had gotten disconnected again. Um, He had a teacher named Stanley Anderson who um, was writing compositions. I guess you would call them essays. And he was getting really bad grades. And he asked Mr. Anderson if he could try writing a short story instead. And he said, Okay, go ahead and do that. So he wrote one called The Turtles. And right around that same time the um the school started putting out this student uh you know, writing journal and uh Stanley Paul Anderson was the the uh faculty advisor to the magazine. So the very first issue, the first story in the magazine was The Turtles by Ernest Gaines. So he was so lucky in a way because he had a a teacher who would first allow him to do that and recognize that he had talent and then he was in a position to recommend publishing that story in the student magazine. So, uh, you know, there, there have been several events in his life that, to me, just strike me as incredibly lucky, and that seems like one of them. He uh, could have had a teacher who would say, nope, <laughs> you know, flunked out. You know, I mean, anything could have happened. Just, um, just
3: look at Confederacy of Dun- Dunces and how hard a time um... – they had getting that to press, you know. His mother had continued the, the the search for a publisher after he was dead.
4: Right. Right.
5: Well, and the teacher and the library both seemed to make a, an enormous influence, you know, for the good in his life. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, side sidebar to this, Ruth, I grew up in Baton Rouge myself, way out on the east side of town uh, near, near the Amite River uh, Bridge. And I can tell you, I had two, possibly three, but definitely two. I remember horrible, rotten teachers in elementary school, second and third grade. I mean, they shouldn't have been allowed to teach, frankly. And I have ADHD. They didn't do anything with kids in the 70s and 80s with ADHD. So I was demonized, vilified, everything else for two solid years. Then I hit a string of really patient, kind teachers, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, uh, who turned me around but, uh, along with my folks? But what I also did, my parents began to take me to the library, the really good main library. I guess it was south of Florida Boulevard, if I'm remembering correctly. But it was a really good main branch of the East Baton Rouge Parish Library.
4: And that mm-hmm. opened my
5: world intellectually.
4: Yeah. Uh, I Libra- really. Yeah. And, and, you know, for him, and I, you know, I mentioned this in the book, he could have. You know, he could have gone to the library and looked around and thought, "Yeah, not really for me. Or he could have just become a lifelong reader and a lover of books. But he became a writer. So, again, yeah, you know, that, that in itself just seems like, as I put it in the book, it just seems like magic, you know.
5: The moment of destiny, to quote well, President Roosevelt.
4: <laughs> it's exactly. his moment of destiny. Yeah. One thing I also need to mention, um, while he was still at San Francisco State, when that first story came out, The Turtles, um, a woman named Dorothea Oppenheimer had recently moved to San Francisco, and she was a literary scout. And uh, she was Jewish. She had left Germany. I think she was from Berlin, and um you know, had basically escaped from the Nazis. She she went to um she went to Radcliffe and um, you know, extremely well educated and um and then she started working as an agent well as a scout, you know, for I guess publishers looking for good writers, and at some point she decided to move out to San Francisco, and um, she read that story in um, The Turtles, and she called the English department and asked if she could meet the writer, so she and Ernest James met at the student union, (laughs) and um, she told him, you know, I think you have a lot of talent and i'd like for you to show me whatever you write and uh from that time on she represented him as his agent and um she was his agent for 30 years she she died of cancer in 1987 but she was the one who first started sending out his work and dealing with publishers and she was also a really good editor, and so she would uh, suggest, you know, she would approach his work also as an editor. And I think probably, you know, it was really helpful to him in that way. And then she also suggested um, that he apply to go to, um, to study creative writing at Stanford University in Palo Alto. And that department was headed by Wallace Stegner, who later became really well known as a kind of a Western writer. And um, uh, Ernest Gaines was given a scholarship, one of three that were granted to study creative writing at Stanford. And he, and then there were other students who were there, but they weren't on scholarship. But he met Wendell Berry there. He met Larry McMurtry. Um, Ken Kesey was there. Um, One flew over the cuckoo's nest. There were quite a few really talented writers studying there. And so he got good um, instruction and, um, you know, was able... They gave him, I think it was a $2,500 grant, which was a lot of money in, like, 1959, I think it was. Um, yeah, because uh, the California
3: colleges were very cheap, maybe even free back then. Uh, you know, they've, they've gone up a lot.
4: <laughs> and, you know, that gave him the opportunity to just concentrate on writing. So, um, you know, he had the time to do the work, and he also had the discipline uh, you know, to sit in a room alone all day, which is basically what it takes.
5: And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lonely vocation, <laughs> very.
4: Yeah, right.
5: When I
3: was writing my dissertation, I didn't teach in the summer, so kind of had full time to work on it. I had to make myself go up to the office to type it because got nothing done at the house. And I said a minimum of 250 words a day, and sometimes, you know, 430 in the afternoon, and I don't, you yeah, I'm working on the first sentence. <laughs> would, um, hammer something out and then go get supper. But you got to have a certain amount of uh, self-discipline to be a writer.
4: Yeah. And I, I really don't think that was ever a problem for him. I think he always put it first. And, you know, he told me that when he graduated from uh He called it State, San Francisco State College, it later became University, that he gave himself 10 years to make it as a writer. So from 57, when he graduated, um, the first novel that he published was actually a reworking of that book he wrote at age 16. It was called Catherine Carmier. And that came out in 1964, and it got very little attention. Then he published his second novel, Of Love and Dust, in 1967, and that really did get... uh, James Baldwin praised it. It it got a very good critical response. And um, he had asked for what he called a two-book contract because he he felt that his short stories were really some of his best work and i i agree with that so this, the Dial press published um the novel in 1967 and then in 1968 they brought out the short story collection bloodline so he said really from 1957 when he made that vow you know i'm going to i'm if, if i haven't made it in 10 years I don't know what I'm gonna do, but you know, I've got ten years to make it. By then he had made it.
3: Did he, he have a been, day job like teaching or something? Uh, or was uh, he able to use not, that money?
4: No, he didn't have that he didn't teach. He would he, he worked um in a post office for a while. He worked as a printer's devil setting type. Yeah, yeah. He worked in an insurance company where he was the mailman. He would sort of collect the mail and deliver it to the different offices. Uh, I mean, he would do whatever he had to do. He was living in a little apartment with a Murphy bed. He said he went across the street to a Chinese grocery, and all he ever bought was pork and beans and hot dogs. So that's what he was living on. And, um, you know. We just did
3: was- of smell uh- um. Oh, what's that little bags of stuff? You ramen. Wake
5: up and smell the ramen.
4: Yeah.
5: <laughs> you know, though, Ben Franklin was a printer's devil. I think really. He was for his brother, yeah. I mean, I think uh, Ben Franklin was, and I believe Mark Twain was too. So there's some pretty important American writers who have who have you know served in that capacity before they went on to their own fame. Yeah.
4: Well, actually, he said he actually enjoyed it. He, yeah. he really he really enjoyed doing that. So, uh, he, you know, he did. And it, at some point, his grandmother had moved to San Francisco. And um, I think she was living, you know, close by. And she was a, a wonderful cook. She had been the cook at the big house at, you know, when she was still at Cherie Quarters. And so... He would go over to eat with her sometimes, and whenever there was a holiday, you know she would cook the turkey and that kind of thing, so you know from time to time he got <laughs> a decent meal but um he spent his time he said you know there were times he'd write ten twelve hours a day he just he was just uh driven really.
5: Somebody like that has—it's almost like a a sense of that of that vocation, in a, you know, in a way. And they uh, nothing will get in the way of them kind of living into that vocation and and you know trying to trying to achieve something, you know, but because they they really think they have something to say, but also because frankly it's who they are, you know. I, I would imagine how, I'm kind of curious, and this kind of goes right to the heart of what you you know did interviewing him. Did he ever introduce himself as Ernest Gaines, I'm a writer, or did I mean or did he just take that for granted that people knew who he was? I mean, how how did he introduce himself? Do you do you know at all?
4: I don't think I, I know he told me that very, very early on, somebody called, it was probably a local uh San Francisco area newspaper, asked him for an interview and there was another writer ernest k gan g a n n and he thought that they had called him by mistake, so not only did he not go around introducing himself as a writer, you know he was kind of surprised to be recognized i think but um, you know he he never was that kind of person. He he told me once he didn't like hanging out with intellectuals, you know, the kind of guys he liked were guys you could drink with in bars, you know, just cops, you know, regular everyday people. He he said he'd much rather hang out with people like that than with, you know, college professors. <laughs>
3: <Are> they- <laughs> uh, have you hung out with college professors? You can understand <laughs>
4: well, you know, once he worked, you know, once he became, you know, he, he developed a relationship with UL, uh, you know, he became extremely good friends with quite a few of his fellow teachers there. So, but I'm sure they were the ones who were very down-to-earth, you know, his kind of people. Uh Not intellectual snobs. I know one of them that that he really was good friends with was Pat Rickles. Um, She and her husband, Milton, both taught there, and I think he was good friends with with both of them. Um, So, yeah, you know, he would make allowances for (laughs) for PhDs.
5: (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's a story like that about and I'm I'm not going to remember all the details correctly I'm sure accurately but the the famous artist uh, particularly did a lot of paperbacks uh, Frank Brzeska that there was a showing of his work someplace, place I think and it was there were a lot of pseudo intellectual types hanging around and you know some I think someone like you who was a journalist you know showed up to chat with him and was going to interview him and he was like you know I've got to get away from here it was all of a caviar and. You know, toast kind of crowd. And he, couldn't, he couldn't, yeah, he was a working class guy. You know, he was, he's ready to get gone. I mean, he, he couldn't stand it and wanted to yeah. go just hang out with ordinary people. Uh, even though he was one of the great artists of, say, the past 50 years or so, and particularly in terms of popular art, he was really talented and just yeah. incredibly, incredibly uh, creative, incredibly gifted. And he was ready, though, to get away from all those pseudo-intellectual types and just go and be himself. And, you know, Mm
3: -hmm.
5: it it was not his world, even though he produced art. It was so powerful and really a lot of it very long-lasting, you know, a classic kind of art.
3: Well, I would only leave if the canapes were all gone. Well,
4: you know, he was the first uh, writer honored at the Louisiana Book Festival.
3: that's really cool. When did the book festival start? I know it's been around a while, but...
4: You know, that question came up um, at this year's festival. I was asked to speak about my book, and somebody asked that question, and um, somebody, uh, you know, there was... There were sort of like monitors in every room to let you know when your time was almost up and that kind of thing. Right, right. And considerate one, that way. <laughs> one of them said he thought it was 2004, but let me see. I'm actually Googling it right now to see if I can find it. He certainly was deserving of. Well, now this says, let's see. In the book festival, it's a little confusing. Um, I'm not sure. Sometime in the early two thousands, I'll. I'll so, look, yeah, it's been a, quick,
3: a while, but not forever.
4: You know, it's. Uh, well, whenever the first one was held, um, I think he spoke in the Senate chamber. Oh wow! Yeah, you know he was—he was the big deal person. But you know they—they right. started, they started something called the Louisiana Center for the Book.
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: And I think the festival grew out of that.
5: They're so, here, this is that of a three four times saying that the Louisiana Book Festival returns in person October twenty ninth, and this was published just you know back in September. But they're saying 1994, and how accurate that is, I don't know. That,
4: um, that doesn't sound accurate at all.
5: Uh, I do know it's one of the more prestigious book festivals on the Gulf Coast, besides the Texas one and I think the Mississippi one. But they're, you know, three of the best known and probably three of the best attended uh, right. on our Gulf right. Coast.
4: Right. Um, so,
3: which was the first uh, writing of his truly you know that
4: took off. I think, Miss Jane. Um, although I think I think the short stories, uh, the Bloodline collection, did get a lot of attention. There's there's one. It's it's five stories. Um, there's one called "The Sky Is Gray" that's been anthologized. I'm not even sure how many times many, many times. It's it's appeared in many anthologies of short stories. I think um I'm not sure but I think I, I know Langston Hughes published one anthology that included Ernest Gaines. I'm not sure which which story it is. Um so I think I think his critical uh name was made, but I think Miss Jane brought him to greater Public attention, and then I think um, the movie, which came out in 1974, really got him the attention. Uh, you know, that probably resulted in maybe another edition of the book. You know, more more copies of the book being sold.
3: Oh, yeah. Um, I remember that. I was a kid, but I remember... When the mm-hmm. autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman was on, and you, know, you reached so much larger an audience, I think that was even before Roots had come out. As a, it
4: it a was year. before it was before Roots. I think Roots came out in seventy six. So he he beat Roots to the screen by a couple of years. Um, no uh,
3: questions for beginners. Um, is it an actual autobiography that he edits, or is it uh, a novel?
4: It is a novel, but many, many people, even though it's 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 clearly stated, but uh, he's told stories of um, um, there was some magazine that was going to run. I forget. I, I mean, I think he actually got caught. Well, one one person who called him thinking it was a an actual autobi- autobiography was Ruby D, the actress, who was hearing yeah. Lucy Davis, yeah. and I think she was going to write about it for some publication and didn't realize it was fiction and, huh. you know, was quite embarrassed and there there were other people who also thought it was not you know, and he says no, it's it's fiction. There you... is no, Miss Jane Pittman, you know. So
3: um <clears throat> there, so tell us a little about that book for people that haven't read it yet and might be interested in buying it or checking it out.
4: It's just a great book. I I reread it recently. Um, I reread everything by him from time to time, and it's just wonderful. You know, she's a 10-year-old at the beginning of the book. She's a slave, and uh, they're out there. I get you know, outside, and the the troops come through, and, you know, emancipation has happened, and uh, there's a a corporal, you know, a Yankee soldier named uh, Mr. Brown, I think, and um, he asks her, you know, what her name is, and she says, "Ticey, Master. And he says, don't call me Master. And he said, "Ticey is a slave name. I don't want you using a slave name. He said, I'm going to call you Jane after my girl back in Ohio. And so she decides her name is Jane Brown, like like after Corporal Brown. And then the the slave master comes out and he says, okay, y'all are free. <laughs> it's like, you can stay or you can go. And and uh, some of them are going, well, where where should we go? And she says, Point North, that's where we're going. You know, she's real spicy and she's just a great right. character even at 10 years old. <laughs> so they they set out trying to walk to Ohio and they actually never get out of Louisiana, but she's with another, a, a group of other people who are walking with her. So you know it takes you all through her life at a certain point she meets Joe Pittman who is a um a horse breaker and she marries him and then he's killed in a uh, horse breaking accident um she raises the little boy there's a little boy with her who's only maybe 3 and she kind of takes him under her wing when she's 10. And so he calls her Mama because his own mother is killed. And then he becomes Ned. He becomes a, a preacher. And then he becomes Ned Douglas. He names himself after Frederick Douglas. And so he becomes a preacher and actually Ernest Gaines based his character on a real person who um was trying to build a school in Point Coupee Parish for black children and was murdered in 1903 and um Ernest Gaines has talked about you know basing that character on on that real figure So, you know, she lives 100 years, so at the end of the book she's 110 years old, and she takes you into all these different relationships in her life with both white and black people, and, you know, at the end of the book they are going to march in a protest march, and she decides to join them, and that's a scene that's quite different from the way the movie ends, because in the movie we have the water fountain scene, but that doesn't happen in the book. So, um, a lot of people say their favorite thing about the book is the water fountain scene, but it actually is not in the book. <laughs> so, but it, in the book, it's a little more subtle the way it ends. But um, that—that's
5: sort of the test scene. For English teachers and professors, it
4: is.
5: (laughs) Yeah, when the when the students quote the water fountain scene, that they the professor or teacher knows immediately that the student has watched the film, which is a pretty good. It's it's a good film,
4: but they know that the person has
5: has watched the
4: film and not read the novel. Right, right. No, it's a good movie, but um, of course, the book is you know as with any film you know there's just so much more to the book you know
3: you know i'm sorry i was just going to say we've mentioned on the show before that the new and i guess they've been around a while but the mini series or limited series uh, can be a much better way of uh, presenting a novel um, rather than a short story which essentially you know most scripts a couple hours and uh it would take the best that to read it. So um, to put this big, important novel and the parent that much down, it's just hard to get all the good stuff in there.
4: It is. Yeah, it is.
5: Um. Sorry. Um, so, much, uh, this brings up a question for me that I've been dying to ask you. Since we're talking about Ms. Jane Pittman, how much input did he have with the... The the adaptation, in other words, was he brought on as a consultant, or I mean, what what did they do exactly, the, the he, filmmakers? He,
4: he didn't want to be, um, <clears throat> you know. He basically would always say, "My job is to write, write the best novel I can. I don't want to have anything to do." I mean, he would he would be happy to make suggestions. You know, he was on the set sometimes. Mm-hmm. But he never wanted to be, uh, you know, I think he was offered Hollywood-type, you know, screenwriting jobs like Faulkner or Fitzgerald, you know, had done. And, in fact, he, he said once, I never wanted to do that because I saw what had happened to Scott Fitzgerald and I, I, I didn't want I didn't want to go that route. <clears throat> so he was happy to be of assistance if asked, but he w- he was never officially associated with any of the movies. You, know,
3: you may remember um, Snows of Kilimanjaro by, uh, oh, not Faulkner, no, the other guy, Hemingway. Hemingway, Byron Hemingway. And the guy in it is a capital W writer, or author, capital A. Um, he's been you know, living off of a book he wrote a long time ago, and he doesn't ever write anymore. So kind of capital A versus lowercase. Lower he's he's just been cashing in on that one book. Um, and, um, you know, doesn't have any more books in him. So, yeah, um, that can happen if you go the Hollywood route. You know, he becomes Ernest Gaines, the author, and he never writes another book because he's... Oh, you wind up with a
5: partner and write, you write a, a, a screenplay uh, that's adapted from the work of your chief rival, and really your hated rival, because he wrote. He wrote, I think, *I Have and Have Not*, uh, which is, of course, based on Hemingway's work.
4: <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I
5: think I think I think that's right. I know one of the one of the later, less kind of lesser Hemingway works. I think that's the one Hemingway I mean Faulkner, you know, for which Faulkner wrote, wrote the screenplay, which is kind of a great irony. It's always been an irony to me.
4: It's hard
3: to think of two more opposite styles in the 20th century.
4: Well, I've allotted an hour here, so
3: if if there's something y'all want to
4: ask. Sure.
3: I was just going to ask if we missed anything that you'd like to mention before we uh, get off the call. I'll
4: mention this just in case it works in at all with with your... um, I guess, but it's, um, I, I made a television documentary with oh, Louisiana cool. Public Broadcasting about Ernest Gaines. Cool. And that came out, uh, in, in fact, I'm reasonably sure you can actually see it on YouTube.
3: Okay. Do you remember the title?
4: It's called Ernest J. Gaines Louisiana Stories. Oh, good. Yeah, if you just Google Ernest Gaines LPB. It'll pop up, and just just in case you might want to check that out, um, we, you know, we interviewed members of his family. We interviewed, of course, him. Uh, We we had actors reading from his work. Cool. Um, And we had a few of the talking heads. You know, the the um, actually they were quite good. The professors uh, who talked about him as a a writer. And um, it's just something that, you know, I just thought you all might want to check out. Well, and one
3: of
4: those
3: goals as an anthology and as a podcast is to make something that teachers can use whether it's like high school or college. But if you're doing a unit on Ernest Gaines, This would be a great uh, documentary to show your class.
4: Oh, yeah. Who's doing a unit on Ernest Gaines? Um,
5: Well, he was speaking hypothetically more than anything else. Why is someone doing that? There's a series series like that by Kultura Productions or something like that. I, I can't remember if it's English or German outfit, but they do that very thing. They produce documentaries of... Famous and/or important writers, and they've got a whole slew of those, you know, those mm-hmm. those DVDs on on these writers. Yeah, but one thing on our um, uh, anthology
3: um, is a teacher resource page, and uh, <coughs> I can't write lesson plans. I don't know what I'm doing, and never you know, that wasn't what they taught us. <laughs> so, um, whenever I teach a grad class and was in Louisiana literature. Find out who all the experienced English teachers are that are working on their masters I'll put each one in charge of a group, and at the end of the quarter, they give me a unit that they've produced together that I can then post on our website and um people can download it for free and we I don't think we've gotten to earnest gains yet we've only I've only taught this class twice so uh there's not as many <laughs> as you might think but
5: but you know. You've got to start somewhere, and then it starts to grow. Right,
4: right. Well,
5: Hollywood has, they've, they've adapted more than one of his facts for the screen for the big screen or in the small screen. There was Miss Jane Pittman. There's The Gathering of Old Men. Isn't there another one, too, that they've adapted? They
4: did um, Lesson Before Dying with
5: Mikai
4: okay, right. Pfeiffer and Don Cheadle. Wow. And that was an HBO movie, and then... um the short story, The Sky is Gray, they did, um, although that, that's one of the ones where they never bothered to come to Louisiana. You know, <laughs> they, they filmed it all in, in uh, I don't know where exactly, but in California. Um, the the young boy in the story is eight years old, and it's told from his point of view, but the boy in the movie is about thirteen years old, and that makes a huge difference. Oh right! Oh. You know, so it 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 could have been a lot better, but, um, but you know, it's worth watching. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, it, to me, it's one of the most. I just think it's one of the best short stories ever. Uh, it's certainly worth reading, but it it it's the only short story of his that I know of that was ever made into a.
3: Film. Cool. So, if you're out um, there and you're looking for short stories, <laughs> and get some of your Ernest Gaines. You know, it's just waiting there for somebody to pick it up and make a movie out of it. Well, well thank, you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, and give us uh, yeah, a little bit more time. The name of your book before <laughs> you can buy it.
4: Okay, it's called. Cherie Quarters, The Place and the People that Inspired Ernest J. Gaines by Ruth Laney. And it's published by LSU Press. It can be ordered directly from LSU Press and currently I think through mid December LSU Press is having a forty percent off sale. I think you have to you have to use a certain code that you can find online and and uh, you can buy any book. And Eva, you
3: like like to have author um, presentations about their books. Have you signed up for any of those? People well, I did. Like
4: I said, I did the one at the um, at the um, at the book sales. Right. Um,
3: I'm
4: invited to do one in New Orleans through um, Preservation in Print in mid December. I'm not sure yet of a date, and then. Um, Great. Yeah, I think I'm going to do one in Port Allen at the library there, but it, but it's for a, a, a certain group only. It's not right. open to the public, mm. and oh, okay. it'll, that'll be in February.
3: So. Well, thank you so much, Ruth. This has been great getting to know you and yeah. getting to know more about Ernest Gaines.
4: Well, thank you for your he interest. He's definitely one of Louisiana's giants.
5: He's one of Louisiana's giants in fiction.
4: He really is. And I always say, just go read his work. You know, and and that's why I recommend the, the book of short stories. It's a great way to become acquainted with his work. And they're all really great stories, too.
3: Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving.
4: Yeah. Same to you. Have
3: a great holiday, yeah. for sure. You uh, know, you take care. <clears throat>
0: Thank you so much. Thank you again. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you. See you later. Okay. We want to thank Ruth for coming on our podcast and telling us a lot about Ernest Gaines. I feel like I've learned a lot, and I hope that our audience has too. He's one of our really important African-American writers and also a representative of Southwest Louisiana. Sometimes we don't, you know, like north Louisiana, sometimes southwest Louisiana gets a little overlooked,
1: unless you yeah, specifically,
0: absolutely.
1: Came, you know. Well, Yeah, and, and far west Louisiana there, you know, along the Sabine River, Tlaiq Bend, that's almost always overlooked. I mean, thankfully, you recall we brought on Robert Caldwell and Thomas Barrett, yeah. who's, you know, both, both are from that area. But, yeah, a lot of that area is just may as well be, you know, on Mars, so to speak, because right. it really, yeah. really is forgotten, uh, well, no. even by everybody but historians, really.
0: And I believe the area that Bruce Craft is studying is, you know, the Southwest uh, as well, so.
1: Um, yeah, he's from, Flor- he from I think he's from Florine, maybe? Maybe. Somewhere yeah. along, you know, along the, along the Toledo Bend area, I
0: think. Right. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology
1: Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We certainly want to thank Ruth for stopping in this week and, and really kind of filling in some gaps about the life and times and work of Ernest Gaines, who is really a giant in terms of Louisiana literature and also American literature. So if you have the chance, do go out and read some of Ernest Gaines' works. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff out there that, you know, constitutes <clears throat> part of his part of his body of, of fiction uh you know a lesson before dying gathering of old men uh the autobiography of miss jane Pittman. uh so please do go out as i said and, and find copies of those books and uh you know find find ruth's work as well because again she has written some really really i think very important stuff about Ernest, uh, Ernest Gaines. gains so thanks again ruth for joining us we also want to thank all of you for listening in and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the louisiana anthology podcast bye for now